Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm so glad that you are tuning in with us. If this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. Finally, we get to celebrate Christmas. This is the last week of our Christmas series that we called The One Who Is. We've been talking about Jesus and what we know about him from the different birth stories that are told in the Bible. The classic Christmas story that we've all heard is just downright cozy. God born as a baby on a silent night in the little town of Bethlehem. It almost gives me warm fuzzies just saying it, but that's not all there is to the story. The true Christmas story has way more to it than just what we can see. Let's find out what we're missing from this story from our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. As crazy as all that stuff sounds about the dragon, I'm not making it up. The dragon was there. You see, there was way more going on that day in Bethlehem than meets the eye. There's a whole other dimension to the Christmas story, an incredible drama with incredible stakes. See, the birth of Jesus is just part of a story that has been unfolding since before creation began. It's a spiritual struggle, a spiritual story that lays behind so much of what happens here on earth. It's it's almost a parallel history. It's way more ominous, way more epic. And whether or not you want to recognize it or not, you're part of it. You're in this story. So here's the rest of the Christmas story, the part we usually don't see. It's not the version we usually read at Christmas. It's not pictured on our Christmas cards. It's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. Let me read it for you. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. The moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. She cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour the child at the moment it was born. She'll give birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all of the nations with an iron scepter. Her child was snatched up to God in his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. He wasn't strong enough. They lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then John said, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night, he's been hurled down. 
Now that adds another dimension to the Christmas story, doesn't it? See, usually all we see is a manger in Bethlehem. Usually all we see is a sweet, innocent young girl giving birth to a fragile little child. And that's true. We see wise men and shepherds and cattle lowing, whatever that means. Revelation pulls back a veil, gives us a peek at a spiritual reality that lays behind the scenes of these human events. Events in heaven which are mirroring things on earth, things, things we need to know. Now to understand the dragon and to understand what he's doing here, we actually have to go back to the time before time itself. You see, we Jesus followers believe that we have been swept up into an epic that began in an ancient past. We believe that wondrous and dangerous things have been unfolding for millennia, still are. And we learn that we have been given a crucial role to play in this story. In fact, we feel that this epic is the story that's written on our hearts and that we see echoes of it everywhere. It's a story in four acts. And it goes something like this. Act one, just God. Once upon a time, great words, aren't they? They're full of legend and mystery and promise and kind of like an invitation. Come, let me show you something. Once upon a time. Have you ever wondered why so many of the great stories start like that? Because ours does. Once upon a time, in the beginning, in the beginning, it's used twice in Scripture. The first time it's used is in Genesis. Once upon a time, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the story of God, the epic story, doesn't start there. That's all the way into Act 3. Before this, to get to the once upon a time before time itself, to get to the once upon an eternity, you've got to actually go to the Gospel of John. Once upon a time, in the beginning, in the real beginning, before Genesis, before creation itself, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well back before creation ever existed, God was there, before time itself. And when John peeks back to this time, he sees a fellowship, an intimacy, a relationship. The Word was with God, the Word was God. John is trying to picture what we call the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The eternal life of God already in intimacy before the world was ever created. See, our God is relational. And he created us to be relational too. He didn't create you and I, all of us, just to exist he invites us into community with him. That's the invitation to the gospel. There's this larger story. You're invited in. Join the epic. You're invited into something that's been unfolding since before time itself. Come, God says, do life with me. Act two. Lucifer. Here's a question. Why do so many of our great stories have a villain? It's hard to think of a great story without one, isn't it? Cruella, Scar, the Wicked Witch of the West, the Dark Lord, Sauron, Darth Vader, Longshanks, Commodus, Lex Luthor, the Joker. 
So many of our great stories have villains because ours does too. But we don't live like it. We don't live like our story has a villain and and it makes life very confusing for us. But it would be incredibly naive to think otherwise, wouldn't it? Turn on the news, war, terror, treachery, betrayal, murder, greed, abuse, blasphemy. One has to admit that there seems to be an evil force working in this world. Well, things have happened prior to our seeing. Things we need to know. In Act 2, well before Genesis, God creates the angels. These are not Raphael's angels, little children with wings and chubby cheeks looking no more dangerous than the residents of a local preschool. These are holy, dreadful, terrifying creatures. There's a story of a battle in the Bible where one angel destroys an entire army. In the book of Revelation, God unleashes four angels, just four, to kill a third of mankind. Billions. What kind of story is this? It's not nearly as safe as you've been led to believe. We human beings are not the most powerful players in this story. And standing at the head of all that angelic hosts is a captain, Lucifer, the shining one, the morning star, as glorious as the sun and apparently more noble, more beautiful, and more powerful than Gabriel, Michael, or any of the other angels. And that's where the story, the epic, takes its first dramatic turn. Pride enters into his heart. This noble captain feels that somehow he's been cheated. He doesn't want to play a supporting role in the story. He wants the story to be about him. He wants to be the star. He wants the glory and the adoration and the worship for himself. Like we do so often. So he turns on his maker, like we do so often. And there in the very courtyard of heaven, in the very presence of God, Lucifer rebels. And he convinces a third of the angels to join him in a revolt against God, and there is war in heaven. Lucifer and his entourage are cast out, and their hearts are twisted. They hate God. They can't defeat him. So they determined to go after whatever God loves. Act three. That's us. In the beginning. In our beginning this time. You see, act three begins in darkness. Darkness over the deep. God's spirit is hovering over the waters. It's kind of like a concert that's about to begin and there's a hush in the darkness right before the first note begins. Suddenly God speaks a word and there's light. He speaks another word. And a great canopy of the heavens is revealed, a sky bluer than you've ever seen. Another word and the great land masses rise out of the sea. The forests and the meadows emerge. You have to linger for a moment and feel God's delight with it all. And then God pauses. And he does something that is absolutely astounding. God says, let's make man. In our image, in our own likeness, and let let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the creatures of the earth. And God made man in his own image, male and female. He created us. 
Then he gave us a freedom that just blows our minds. You see, power can do nearly anything, but it cannot force love. Guards in a concentration camp can force you to do just about anything, but not to love them. Maybe that's why God is so shy to use his power in this act three. He didn't create us to be puppets. He didn't create us to be cringing subjects. He created us to be lovers, to be friends, to be allies, to join him freely in this story. And this is where our story takes a tragic turn. For evil was in the garden. Lucifer, Satan from Act 2. He comes to us and he whispers to us the same lie that he used on the angels. You can't trust the heart of God. God's holding out on you. You've got to take matters into your own hands. You've got to reach for what you want. You've got to rewrite the story and you've got to give yourself a better part. And we believed him. Paradise was lost. Something in our heart shifted. We reached for more, and in that reaching, we fell from grace. And our glory faded, as Milton said. It faded so soon. And we can feel it. We can feel that we are not what we were meant to be. We feel a brokenness in us that we can't fix. And we began to realize that we needed a savior. So God began planting clues, dropping these breadcrumbs that a savior was coming, a rescue was coming. Now if you think about it, so many of our greatest stories have a rescue. Jack comes to rescue Rose, Wallace rises up to rescue Scotland, Maximus rises up to free Rome, Aslan rescues Narnia, Luke and Hans and Leia rescue the Alliance. Every great story has a rescue. Do you know why? Because yours does. And the second part of Act 3 is about the rescue. Kierkegaard is a great theologian, old dead guy. He tells this parable. He says, suppose there was a king, and this king loved a humble maiden. And this king was like no other king. Every other ruler trembled before his power. This king had the strength to crush any opponent. No one dared breathe a word against him. And yet, this mighty king was melted by his love for a humble maiden. How could he confess his love to her? In a way, his kingliness actually tied his hands. If he just comes to her cottage with an armed escort and white banners waving, he would just overwhelm her. If he took her to his palace, made her his queen, crowned her with jewels and clothed her with robes, she might stay, but how would he ever know if she really loved him? How could he know? King didn't want a subject. He wanted a lover. So in Kierkegaard's parable, the king disguises himself as a beggar. And he comes to the maiden's house alone to win her heart. You see, guys, ours is the most beautiful of love stories. The ancient of days himself slips into the enemy camp under the cover of night, disguised as a carpenter from Nazareth, to win our love. So there was a bigger Christmas story that often we don't see, the real Christmas story. You see, 
the babe in a manger surrounded by shepherds and wise men doesn't begin to capture the immensity of the scene. Something harder to see is happening, more ominous, more epic. We get a glimpse, just a glimpse of that in those verses in Revelation that we read earlier. Parallel history. It's a story of a woman. She's clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. A crown of stars is on her head. She's pregnant. She's very pregnant, crying in pain as a child is passing through her birth canal. She probably doesn't represent Mary, the virgin of Bethlehem. She probably represents the people of God. God's faithful, God's bride, through whom his Messiah would come into the world. And then it pictures this enormous red dragon, heads and horns and crowns and a tail that sweeps stars out of the sky, a ferocious creature, enormously powerful, frightfully ominous. Lucifer, Satan, the serpent from the garden, the dragon who's been trying to pull us away from God since the very beginning, our beginning. It tells us this dragon crouched hungrily before the woman, waiting to devour the child as it emerged from her womb. It's an incredible picture. It's an incredible moment. It tells us that the woman, clothed in splendor, crying in pain, gives birth to a son. A male child, a Christ child, who would rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. That doesn't mean meanness or tyranny. It means power, authority. It says the dragon's designs were thwarted. That the child was snatched up at the last moment to God and to his throne. And it says that the woman, the people of God, fled into the wilderness to a place prepared by God where she would be protected by, by his hand. And then, almost literally, hell breaks loose. All-out cosmic war. Michael and his angels go to war with the dragon and his legions. The angels press forward. The demons retreat. And it says that the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the deceiver, Satan himself was hurled down from heaven. And his legions were thrown down with him. And then John says, this is so cool. I heard a loud voice in heaven say this, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. <laughs> That's the Christmas story. That's the Christmas story. It's not just about Joseph and Mary and a baby in a manger. Revelation is pulling back a veil, giving us a peek at a spiritual reality that lays behind the scenes of this human picture. It's not so sweet and sentimental. It's an invasion. Christmas is an invasion, a great invasion. It's a raid by God into the stronghold of evil. It's a decisive blow in a cosmic war. And guys, without some sense of this part of the story, then what is pictured on our postcards and in our manger scenes and in our Christmas carols is simply sentimental deception. It's pious fantasy. 
You see, that first Christmas may have been one of the, one of the two most deceptive events in history. He just looked like a baby. And he was. He looked so fragile and so helpless. And he was, kind of. Who could have known that this peasant teenager had borne the long-expected Christ child? Who could have known that a dragon looked on anxiously, waiting to devour the child? Who could have known that a cosmic war was about to begin in which the dragon would be hurled down from heaven? And who could have known that the fate of every single man, woman, and child, your fate, my fate, from that moment forward would depend on whether we bend our knees to the baby of Bethlehem who is really the word of God. You see, Christmas is about an invasion. God enters into our world and he plants a flag. He stakes a claim on my soul. He takes a claim on yours. He gives us a decision to make. Surrender or fight. Surrender to him through the word or go to war. Don't be deceived by a baby in a manger. Don't be fooled by the sentimentality and the sweetness of the story. The only way we truly honor the baby in the manger, the Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the Lord, is to bend our knees and surrender. Anything else is inadequate. This is the last week of our celebration of the Advent. For the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we've been lighting these candles. There's a candle of hope, a candle of peace, a candle of love. And this morning, we're going to can light the candle of joy, the fourth of these candles. Tomorrow, we're going to light the center candle, the white one, the Christ candle at the center in our Christmas Eve service. Hope, peace, love, and joy. And if you remember, that's what the angel promised. He says, I'm bringing you good news that's going to bring everybody great joy, great joy. The Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, he's here. You see, we believe that was the first taste of permanent joy, and we believe there's another chapter in that story. We think he's coming back. That's going to be the fourth act of this epic story. Here's what's coming. Act four, the kingdom will be restored. Paradise will be regained. At the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus promises something that's absolutely wonderful. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. I'm making everything new. <laughs> you see, all of the miracles of Jesus when he was on earth were illustrations of what's coming. He would touch a blind man. What happened to the blind when they were touched by Jesus? They'd see. They'd see the beauty of the world for the first time. The deaf, what happened to the deaf when Jesus touched them? They'd hear laughter. They'd hear music. They'd hear their kids. The lame, when he touches them, they get up. They walk, dance. The dead are raised. Guys, he's not just giving us random proofs that Jesus really is the Son of God. He's pointing forward to what's coming. He's telling us about what's coming. Jesus is saying, I'm going to make things new. 
Heaven is not an eternal church service in the sky. We get the kingdom back. We live happily ever after. All that is broken is fixed. It's great news, great joy. And yet there's a sobering truth, more sobering than any of us can imagine. (laughs) Not everyone lives happily ever after. Not in any story and certainly not in ours. If you remember back in the Garden of Eden, God gave us a choice. God says, I've set before you life and death. Pick. It's the choice that every single one of us faces when we come face to face with Jesus. Because what Jesus offers is real life. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. John tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might have life. Real life, eternal life. And there's more, no more simple way to describe Act 4 than it's the restoration of what was meant to be. See, right now in Act 3, our story is one of danger and high stakes. Day is coming when we go home. And everything that we long to be, we will be. Everything will be as God meant it to be. Everything that wounds us will all be swept away. And real life begins. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. There's two parts to this Lord's Supper. Part of the Lord's Supper is looking back at what Jesus did when he came that first time. Came into the world to be our Savior, to die for our sins, to be raised from the death by God. And he says, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember who I am and what I did for you. But there's another piece to the Lord's Supper. It's an anticipation of that time he's coming back. He says, someday I'm going to eat this table with you in my kingdom restored. This morning when you come around this table, it's a looking back at what he did, and it's a looking forward to what he's going to do. In a moment, our team is going to sing a Christmas song for you. It's a song that you may not have heard before, so if you want, you can just listen. It's about the hope that we have. The hope that we have because of what he did when he was here the first time and the hope we have because of what he's going to do the next time he comes. And after that song is over, if you're a Jesus follower, we've got worship stations around the room. You're welcome to come up, eat a piece of bread which represents the body of Jesus broken for us, the cup which represents the blood of Jesus shed for us, to remember and to look forward. And while you're here, if you desire, if Capital City is your home, there's an offering box. We give our first part back to God. It's an act of worship. There's a white generous bucket. Sometimes we've got a dollar or two in our pocket. We drop it in there and every money, uh, every dollar that goes in there, we use to love on people, to take care of people, sometimes in our church, sometimes in our community, sometimes even beyond these borders. Listen to this song and then be prepared to come to the table.